0: In Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, a father named Polonius is preparing to send his grown son, Laertes, off to Paris where Laertes is going to study. He's going to seek higher education. Polonius is a character who is never short on words. He cannot help himself but get one more long lecture out to his son before he sends him out the door. And so he gives a speech and this speech contains several quotable lines that you're probably quite familiar with. It also contains a number of lofty platitudes and and they, they they sound like they mean a lot of things, whether they do or not. But the one that has been recycled most frequently is found near the beginning of the speech where Polonius challenges his son by saying this. He says, This above all, to thine own self be true. You've heard that before, right? To thine own self be true. This mantra seems on the surface to be a fairly noble charge. Truth is good, right? And who can you trust more than yourself? So be true to yourself and don't pander to others who might uh, sway you towards another way of life. And so in modern usage, this quote has become one of the slogans that defines someone who has an independent spirit, who relies on themselves to set their own values. To thine own self be true has become a a go-to quote It's especially popular in tattoo parlors these days. I see a lot of people with that on their shoulder or other places. And that might be good advice, if the heart of man was itself actually true. On the contrary, the word of God reveals to us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. That it is desperately sick who can understand it. This is Jeremiah 17. So, ironically, the character who gives this advice who tells his son to be true to himself, he's killed in the very next act of the play. Why? Because he was sneaking around and spying on the prince, and he was killed for it. So to be true to oneself is to establish as your moral compass the thoughts and desires of your own heart, a heart that is continually pressured by temptation, a mind that is confused and does not see the whole picture of life. Is there not something greater, something more trustworthy that we might... Be true to. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, and in verses 19 through 23, the Apostle Paul describes a different approach than what is common to the corrupt heart of man. He's more concerned about being true to his Savior than he is about being true to himself. Rather than battle for his own freedoms, he expresses his willingness to make appropriate accommodations to his personal manner of living in an effort to communicate God's truth more effectively to those around him, especially those who are not just like him. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me read to you verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, That by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to give us discernment in this passage today. Lord God, teach us and train us, help us to be more Christ like. I pray, Father, that there would be a healthy dose of humility in our hearts as we come to this text and we see. Paul, who is willing to bend, who is willing to adapt and to be flexible, who does not insist upon his own way, but recognizes that, Jesus, you are the way, and that if we can make accommodations to others to help them see the way of Christ and to help them to know what it is that you truly desire of your people, then let us be willing to make those adjustments. But I pray, Father, that you would also help us to know where to draw that line in our hearts. There are aspects of who you have made us to be that must be unwavering, Lord, that we must be firm in. And so I do pray, God, that as we examine this text together, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the ways that we might also stand firm, that we might not compromise what really matters, Lord God. Help us to keep you first and foremost. And may we be faithful in the way that we testify of the the means by which we have been saved, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his perfect name. Amen. In the first few verses of this paragraph, Paul sets forth an example for the Corinthians to examine and hopefully to follow. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul is a free man. You can mark that here. Possessing a degree of free will, he gets to make decisions each day about which way he will go, what he will say, how he will act. As a Roman citizen, he enjoyed a great many rights that protected his freedoms in the Roman Empire. Paul also had been set free from the grip of sin by Jesus Christ. So he is free in grace, free to do what is holy and good, and to do it in a way that truly pleases God. But even though Paul is free, he has chosen to exercise that freedom in an interesting way. He exercises his freedom by giving up his freedom. By serving those who still need the gospel that has set him free from sin. Leading up to these verses, if you remember what we studied a couple of weeks back, Paul had been explaining that even though a preacher of the gospel has a right to be paid, to be compensated for the work that he does, that Paul himself had exercised his personal right to not be paid. He had chosen to support himself by means outside of the church, Not only did he labor tirelessly for the gospel, but in certain times of the day, he would set himself apart to build tents as a a manual labor by which he earned his wage and supported himself so as not to be a burden to the church and so that others would not question his sincerity and his motives as he gives the gospel to people. So Paul's making a bold statement with his actions here. He is demonstrating that love is more important Then freedom. Because Christ loved Paul and willingly suffered and died in his place on the cross, Paul is determined to love his Savior and to love others so that through his preaching and living out the gospel, others might experience the same love and forgiveness. Because of this love, Paul is now far less concerned about his personal preferences and even his own unique identity then he is about other people's eternal state. So he has become a servant to all of them. And whose example is Paul following by doing this? Philippians 2, verses five through eight, gives us a clue. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We sometimes call this the great condescension. Jesus cared so much about sinful people like us that he left the beautiful riches of heaven And took on limited human flesh and lived among us with a true human nature. He subjected himself to the difficulties of living in a fallen creation, a place where sin abounds and hardship is an inevitable reality of life. Christ went through that so that he might serve us, so that he might care for our needs, the greatest of which is forgiveness. So Jesus himself has shown us that there are more important things than freedom. It pleased him to show love even to those who had rebelled against him and rejected him as king. And so the desperately sick hearts of men are in needing of salvation. Not from circumstances. Not salvation from sadness. Not salvation even from sickness. We need a greater kind of salvation. Not a salvation from loneliness or a salvation from even an injustice What we need salvation from is our own brokenness. A brokenness which causes us to turn away from the God who loves us better than anyone can. We need salvation from who we are. This tendency within us to break God's law makes us enemies to the kingdom of God. And subject to the righteous judgments of the one who rules on the throne. God has made it clear Sin is not going to go unpunished under his watchful eye. And the scripture also tells us that the consequences of betraying the one who gives life, the consequences are serious, aren't they? The consequences of sin is death. So friends, we have much to thank the Lord for because the gospel has assured that we, those sinful and broken, are not without hope. Titus 3, 4-7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, meaning being made right in the eyes of God, by his gracious work, we might become heirs according to the hope Of eternal life. What a transformation. What a shift in station. We were once rebels to the kingdom of God, but those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have embraced the wonderful work that he did by giving his life on the cross and rising on the third day, those who trust in Jesus are no longer enemies to the kingdom, but are now heirs of the riches of the king. Paul wants this good news, this gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ to go out to every tribe and tongue and nation. And he is willing to set his own personal prerogative to the side to achieve this goal. Is this an attitude that is reserved exclusively for Paul? Is it only expected of apostles or should we have the same kind of heart in us, church? Remember verse five that I read a moment ago. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is not just an apostolic attitude. This is not exclusive to Paul. But if you call upon the name of the Lord, there should be within you a desire to see the gospel go forth like there was in Paul. A desire to see the lost who are hopeless and who are wandering in the dark saved. To see these lost sheep brought near to a shepherd who cares for their needs and will not let them be lost again we see this sentiment elsewhere in Paul's writings too. Galatians chapter 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So God has given us great freedom, but he doesn't set us free from sin simply so that we can turn around and continue to pour into our own well and fill our own hearts with happiness and gladness while everyone else perishes around us. Our true servanthood is to Christ himself. But one of the ways that we serve Jesus is by living our lives according to the pattern of how he lived. Jesus served others, so now as his disciples, we gladly submit some of our freedom in order to effectively serve the needs of the others around us. So Paul demonstrates this to us by making himself a servant to all, And this kind of service has a distinct character to it. When we think servant, think of Paul making himself a servant. There might be a lot of mixed signals that sends to us. So, so think about this clearly. He isn't a servant to the people around him in a sense that he is at their beck and call. He hasn't exchanged one master, Jesus, for many masters. Rather, when we follow Paul's example and submit ourselves to serving others... We're not responding to their commands. We are serving them on behalf of our one true master because he commands us to love them that way. In obedience to the great commission that he laid out for his church, we're serving others by giving them what is eternally beneficial to them. Yesterday, I don't know what you were doing at 8 a.m. You might've still been sawing logs. You might've been sitting in front of the Saturday morning cartoons with a big old bowl of cereal. Is that still a thing? Kids still do that? I don't know. People have tablets now. They, listen, they look at their cartoons whenever they want. When I was a kid, Saturday was for cartoons, right? Uh, but many of you, it's for catching up on rest. Many of you, it's the day you don't work, right? But some of you, a pretty large group of you, were out here at the church already at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. You were lifting tables. You were moving food. You were getting things set up. Because every Saturday from 9.30 to 10.30, if there is someone in our community who has a need for food... We as a church provide that for them. We take our free time and set it aside and submit it to the Lord. We go out there and we minister to the people in our community. Now, you could do anything with your time on a Saturday morning, but for those who come on Saturday mornings and help out with that ministry, I thank you for the example of self-sacrifice that you're giving there. You're doing in some ways what Paul would do. You are sacrificing some of your freedom so that somebody who doesn't have what they need might get that. But even when we distribute free food to our neighbors, while we pray that it meets a real need and eases their financial burden and their anxieties, we have a much greater service goal in mind when we do that. It is our hope that people will see our love and they'll be moved to come and interact with our Lord. They'll be moved to come to a church service. They'll be moved to try to find out why we have this hope and why we can give up this time with joy in our hearts and a smile on our face. We want to share the gospel with our neighbors. And so that's why we do things like that. Returning now to the last half of verse 19, Paul reveals the true driving motivation for this sacrificial service that he's engaged in. Why does he sacrifice his personal freedoms? And as we will see, even aspects of his personal identity, he does it so that he might win more of them. Now, Paul's driving goal is not his own personal freedom. It is to see sinners saved. And you might think through this language a little bit that he uses here in verse 19, if you want to understand what Paul is digging at. Years ago, it was pretty common, probably decades ago, it was pretty common to hear people talk about winning souls. That language is not used nearly as often today. What it means is, I want to go out and through... Obedience to the Lord, see people who are lost and enemies to the kingdom be won over to the kingdom by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, can we properly win anyone to Christ ourselves, church? We cannot. Can we convince someone on a purely intellectual level? Can you engage someone in an academic sense and through careful reason and argument show them that Christ is right and they are wrong and expect that to save them? You cannot. You cannot. It is not a waste of your time to engage in that activity because the Lord can use it. But our intellect, our knowledge, our minds don't save people. Can you inspire somebody by an emotional plea? Can you break their heart with such a story of God's redemption in your life that that, that's it, That's, that's all they needed to hear, and now they're saved. They want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, emotional pleas are part of what we do because we're emotional people, it's emotional to be saved from the clutches of damnation, but our emotional pleas don't save anyone. Can we scare someone into faith with vivid warnings about hell and about judgment? No. Remember the farming metaphor that Paul used earlier in this letter, back in, I think it was chapter one. While many faithful Christians worked together, to try to labor for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of them tilling the soil of the heart, preparing people to hear what is going to be preached. Others planting the seed of the gospel, literally telling people about the truth of the gospel. Others watering the seed in the soil so that it might one day hopefully sprout. Don't forget what Paul said. It is only God who can cause the seed to germinate and become alive. Our efforts do not accomplish that. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So salvation is exclusively a work of the Lord. But the attitude that is displayed by Paul sets a standard for us. Whatever we can do to be used of God, it should be our heart to do that thing. And we should rejoice when we see the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life that they are won over from the darkness of the world that we are born into, this rebellion that is natural to us, when they are won over into a life that is filled with the grace of our Savior. Why does Paul choose to use the word win and not save here? Context will help us to probably understand the, the reason why. This word in the Greek is kerdeso, and it means to earn or to profit, to gain something. And don't forget what Paul was just talking about a few verses earlier. It is in keeping with the previous motif that he has given up his right to material pay, to money, to receive something better than money. Right? He gave up the right to be paid as a minister of the gospel so that he might see the benefit of Jesus glorified in the expansion of the church and the saving of souls. So this is like Paul's true salary. Seeing God save people through his ministry. That's what he wants more than anything. He wants it more than money. He wants it more than his freedom and independence. He wants it more than the favor of men. He wants to see God do what only God can do. And he would love to see that happen through his work. A mission-minded Christian is concerned about the lost to the degree that they are willing to surrender not only their resources, their time, their money, their attention, their talents, but even parts of their own personal uniqueness in order to connect with those who need Christ. And as this passage unfolds, we will hear Paul describe how he has accommodated his actions and put his own personal preference to the side to be more effective as a missionary to a wide variety of peoples. So there are four specific examples here. Accommodation number one, to the Jews, Paul became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, your first question might be, but I thought Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians 2.7 says, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So so Paul is here in Galatians 2.7 kind of outlining his focus in ministry, that he is geared towards saving those who don't have a background in the Old Testament, who did not grow up ethnically Jewish. Romans eleven thirteen. 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. This is Paul again. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So clearly we can't argue about the fact that Paul is called to minister to the Gentiles and that he has a special focus upon them. There was a special calling on Paul's life and ministry that compelled him to make the conversion of Gentile people a strong priority in his life. And amen that he did that. Because it brought the church to places that it had not yet previously traveled to. But it would be a mistake, friends, to think that Paul was somehow unconcerned with the lost Jews. Or that he was only authorized to preach to pagans. That is not the case at all. We see in Acts chapter 9, which records the conversion of Paul from persecutor of the church to do a 180 degree turn. Now he is one of the prime preachers in the church. We see how that started in Acts chapter 9. And part of that story involves a little-known man named Ananias. This isn't Ananias and Sapphira. That's a different Ananias. But here's an old man who is faithful to the Lord, and he sees a vision. God is preparing him because Saul, Paul, who had just seen a vision of Christ and had gone blind, was going to soon arrive in his city. And he said, keep an eye out for him. He says in verse 15 of Acts 9, but the Lord said to him, go, For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this is the words of Jesus. And on his authority, he says that Paul is an apostle, not just to the Gentiles, but also to the Jew, to the children of Israel. Paul's churches all had... Jews and Gentiles in them. Paul established a well-documented strategy of reaching new communities. When he would go to an unreached area, the first place that he would preach would almost always be the synagogue. He would go to the local gathering place where the Jews would get together and look over the Old Testament scriptures, and then he would reason from the scriptures with them to show that Jesus Christ, this man who had been recently crucified in Jerusalem, that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the promised Messiah, that he had come to give his life as the last sacrifice necessary so that people might be redeemed once and for all and so that the kingdom of heaven might be established. He would preach to them first. And then those Jews who rejected him, all right, you've had the gospel. But those Jews who received that message, whom the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the works that, that Paul was doing had woken these people up and given them new vision of the truth and helped them to understand the Old Testament, these faithful people of peace would now become a part of the mission in that area. That was the typical way that Paul would establish churches in unreached areas. Paul preached essentially the same message to everyone. This message is justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So is it right to call Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? To a degree, yes. But this distinction has often been overplayed. We, we should care far more about a person's lostness than we do about their station or their ethnicity or any other aspect of who they are. If someone needs the gospel and you have the gospel, don't just wait around for someone who is better equipped to teach them, somebody who's more like them or speaks their language to do the work of evangelists. Do what you can to share the truth with them. Now we might ask ourselves, how has Paul become as a Jew He was already a Jew, right? Is this a trick question? He was a Jew. In fact, he was a very good Jew. I read a couple weeks ago in Philippians 3, 5, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, so that, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he was like a, a super Israelite, right? This is a guy who followed all the instructions that were given to the Israelite people. So if anybody was a Jew, he was a Jew, And yet he's saying now that in Christ, as he's trying to reach his countrymen, that he's going to become as a Jew in order to reach the Jews. Because in Christ, much of his Jewish identity had become inconsequential to him. I was uh, sharing the gospel with a young lady a few years back and she finally came to understand her need for Christ. She'd grown up around the church, so she had a background, but she had grown up in a very liberal area, and so she had all these worldview ideas about what was good and what was right that did not match the scriptures. And so God started that journey with her by convicting her heart of her own sin and helping her to see that she needed redemption in Christ and that she couldn't get it anywhere else from there, except for there. And then it was amazing for me to watch as bit by bit, day by day, she began to run into these conflicts that who she used to be didn't match who she was now. She had ideas about morality, ideas about what was expected of people, ideas about unity and community that did not match the word of God. And one of the great joys of that year was seeing this young lady say, well, I don't know if I can believe that, but let me go to the scripture and see if God really teaches it. And she would go into the word, I would give her passages, she would study them, she would come back to me and, and the stubbornness would just fall away. And she would say, well, I used to hold on to that idea, that thought, but I can see now that in Christ, I can't, I can't think that way anymore. That's who I used to be and now I'm gonna walk in Christ. And that's how it should be with each of us, that who we used to be before we met Christ That person isn't who we are now, necessarily. There are elements and aspects of it that persist. But so much of what we were that was not godly is being pared away by Christ so that we could be what God made us to be. In a few weeks, it's very likely that we'll be having a baptism service here. We've got several people who are hoping to join our church in in the covenant of membership, and that's a, a, a joy to us. And so when you see people come forward for baptism, they are obeying one of the two sacraments of the church, that being communion and baptism by water. And so when these believers come forward, what they are doing is they're not coming to be baptized so that their sins can be scrubbed away. The water doesn't actually wash them. They're not coming so that in that moment they can be saved as they come out of the water. They're coming forward because they have been baptized by the Spirit already. That God has immersed them in the truth that only a believer can understand, that he's opened their eyes to their need for Jesus. And now as a public outward expression of what God is already doing inside of them, they come forward to show in a dramatic way that the old life that they used to live apart from Christ has been buried in the ground in a sense. It has been laid to rest When a person goes under the water, it's like they're being buried. Their old life is being put to death. And as they come out of the water, it's a vivid picture of the newness that they have in Christ Jesus, that they are a new creation. And in addition to that newness, as we walk in faith, God will continually renew us and sanctify us and make us more like Christ as we engage in his word and in prayer and the body of, of the church. Though Paul is no longer properly Jewish by faith, he has a desire to re-engage with the people who are still operating within that culture. And in what ways does he do that? He does that in a number of ways. If you read in Acts 16, verses one through three, he had a team of missionaries that were going into a Jewish area and Paul was very concerned about the biases that the Jewish people he was gonna try to reach might have against his team. There was a young man on the team named Timothy who was raised by a mother and a grandmother who were Jewish, but his father was a Greek, so he had never been circumcised. Timothy was half Jewish by ethnicity, but he believed in Jesus Christ, so he was 100% Christian. So what do you do? Paul spoke with Timothy and reasoned with him, and before they set out on the mission journey, Acts 16 verses 1 through 3 tells us that he had Timothy circumcised. Not because Timothy needed to be circumcised. Not because that was now a, still a sign of the covenant with God, but because he knew that if there were people he was going to try to reach out to who would not listen to anyone but somebody who was in covenant Old Testamently with the Lord, that he was going to have to overcome that social barrier, that, that cultural barrier. So he capitulated. Paul says in other places that circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing anymore. But he did that as a means of reaching people who otherwise might not listen to him at all. He did so by interacting with the Jews at the synagogue. He went to their turf. He went to their environment and reasoned with them according to the Old Testament scriptures. He was willing to engage them where they were at. He didn't just beckon and call them to some meeting hall. He went to where they were at and cared for them on their grounds. And he did so by carefully watching his diet When he was eating in the presence of Jews, he made sure that he didn't eat in ways that would offend them. Because we know that God's chosen people in the Old Testament had strict dietary laws. And those laws were significant to them. So significant, so able to set them apart from other people in the lands that they would usually not eat with anybody who was not Jewish. Because they didn't want to see somebody eating an animal that was prepared improperly, that still had blood in it. They didn't want to see these unkosher foods consumed during a meal. And so when Paul was meeting with them, he would adjust his diet so that he would not be an offense to these people that he was trying to preach the gospel to. He was willing to accommodate to these Jewish people that he was trying to meet. But there were limits that he would not cross. There is great difficulty, friends, in trying to strike a balance here between accommodating oneself to reach the lost and then accommodating so much so that the lost are the ones reaching you and making you more like them. So there are some things that we're going to have to identify here that we cannot accommodate. We will accommodate much, much of our freedom, much of our preferences, much of our own safety even. But we do not accommodate in certain areas such as matters of worship. Notice that while Paul goes to the synagogue, we do not see him going into the temple to offer sacrifices, do we? He does not follow the Levitical system of sacrifices anymore because he's no longer a Jew. And he understands that that was all signs and types pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no longer a need for any kind of atonement in Paul's life because it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. Every bull, sheep, dove you name it, that was sacrificed in the Old Testament for the hundreds of years leading up to Christ in Jerusalem. All of those sacrifices pointed forward to what he would do. And once Christ has done that, there's no longer a need for any of that religious behavior. That sacrificial system has been laid to rest. It has fulfilled its duty. So if you want more information about that, you can read in the book of Hebrews about how those who had believed as Jews, but then come to understand Jesus was their Savior, that they were urged to leave that life behind them. And when they started to think, wow, we're getting persecuted as Christians here. It's not easy to be a Christian in Rome. And they started to consider going back to the Jewish way of life because that was more established. It was more acceptable that they were urged by whoever wrote Hebrews to not do so because they had no business worshiping as if they had not been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we do not accommodate in the matters of our worship. And friends, there is so much accommodation going on right now in the Christian church around the world where God's holy times of gathering have been made to look more like secular raves than Christian church services, all in the name of trying to draw in the lost and hopefully preach some sliver of the gospel to them. Friends, we are not doing the lost world any favors by making the church here, this holy assembly, this gathering, look so much like the world that it looks nothing like a church. So we must draw the line at worship, that when we worship God, we do it the way he calls us to do it. We do it according to the instruction of his scripture. And if people don't want that, that's okay. That's their choice, right? But we can't make it what they want to such a degree that it's no longer the gospel anymore, that Jesus is no longer Lord over it. So we don't accommodate in matters of worship. We do accommodate in other areas here. Accommodation number two. Paul says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. This is in some ways an expansion on the first accommodation, right? Here Paul is giving us a little deeper intel into the efforts that he made to reach the Jews. For it was the Jewish people who were the ones who were living under the law. Now what that means is that they were under covenantal contract to follow the laws of the Levitical word in the Old Testament. They had to follow all those laws. The laws referred to this moral code that was given to Israel by the prophet Moses. The examples that I laid out earlier apply here too. Those under the law would not even share a meal with a Gentile. So Paul was careful not to act in a way that made those who were taking the law of Moses seriously feel as though they would be in sin to eat with him. And he made sure that they weren't feeling disrespected by his actions or his attitudes. Likewise, acting in a culturally Jewish manner around Jews, Paul did not sabotage his own efforts to tell them the things that they needed to hear regarding the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament itself. But here's an important point. Anyone who's living under the law, by that I mean those who are counting on their own obedience to the moral code of the Old Testament, or any moral code for that matter, to redeem them from their sins, those who are under law are not saved. We are not saved until we're brought out from underneath the law by the grace of Jesus Christ. If you're counting on your own good deeds to qualify you for heaven, even to the smallest of degrees, you're founding your faith on something that is corrupt and ultimately corruptible. So the things that you do that would seem good to the world, they can't compare to the glory of what Christ did for you. That offering to God means nothing. It's like filthy rags, says the book of Isaiah, compared to what Christ offered on the cross for us. And indeed, the law of the Old Testament was never meant to save people. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, meaning in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what comes through the law? Not salvation itself, but the knowledge of our need for salvation. The law is a gigantic floodlight on our sin. When we read it, we recognize how much worse we are than we think we are. It morally exposes us. We can no longer lie to ourselves and think, well, at least I'm better than that guy. At least I don't say what she says. I must be a pretty good person. The law says no. Are you like Christ? Are you without flaw? Are you constantly loving your God? Do you hold no other idols before him? Are you obedient to every jot and tittle of the law? If we are stuck in that mindset that we must earn our way to heaven, we will always fall short because there is no offering that can be given to get us into heaven short of perfection, and only Christ could provide it. So while Paul was willing to accommodate his behavior, that he might secure an opportunity to preach to those who are still under the law, he makes it very clear that he doesn't himself go back to living under the law. We may accommodate in many ways, the way that we dress, the way that we talk, the way that we engage culture, but we don't accommodate in worship, and we don't accommodate our message. We don't accommodate the message. We can't afford to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are saved only by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. We can't afford to make the gospel anything less than that or it's not the gospel. People are doing that in so many ways today. They are doing it by failing to preach at all about sin. They say that Jesus saves but they don't really tell you from what And so then you get the person in the pew who's never called out for what they are doing in a a disobedience to God. And they think, I want Jesus to save me. I need him to save me from my bills. I need him to save me from this, this neighborhood that I live in where people reject me and they don't love me. I need him to save me from my anxieties and from my doubts. And friends, Christ cares about those things in your life. He knows what you need. He knows what hurts you. And he has compassion towards you. But what he is saving you from is you. He is saving you from your sin, if you put your faith and trust in him. So if we fail to preach sin, we have accommodated the message, and we have undermined the whole reason for our mission. Some fail to declare the exclusivity of Jesus. They want to say that Jesus saves, but they're also open to the idea, but maybe there's some other ways, you know, some Jesus-like ways to get you into heaven. And we don't want to be judgy. We don't want to be exclusive. So You know, if you want to believe other things, that's fine. But we're going to believe on Jesus. Friends, that is only a shadow of the gospel. That is not the true gospel. Because Jesus himself says that I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was very exclusive. And if that is the truth, that you can't get to heaven apart from his shed blood and his resurrection, then you can't preach to people that you care about that there might be another way. Because you're sending them off. The side of a cliff, you're sending them down a path that's gonna to lead to their destruction. We accommodate the message if we fail to emphasize that Jesus must be more than our buddy or our example or our teacher. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. And who is the king of that kingdom? Jesus Christ. And if you give your life to him, he doesn't wanna just be a grandpa figure to you who gives you gifts at Christmas and gets you off the hook when you get in trouble. He wants to be your Lord, and he will be nothing less than your Lord if you're a part of his kingdom, because he is the king, and he reigns forever. So we must not accommodate our message. Another accommodation we can make, though, accommodation number three, to those outside the law, Paul says, I became as one outside the law, and here, another parenthesis here, another disclaimer, he wants to be very accurate and detailed in the way he shares this, because people could take this the wrong way. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, this speaks not to the Israelite, but to the Gentile, to the pagan, to the average Roman citizen, the non Jew, those who were not connected to God by the kind of covenant that defined Israel as a set apart nation under the law of God. Paul wanted to reach these people to now this ended up being the bulk of Paul's mission as we spoke of earlier not only practically because so often the Jews the majority of those he tried to reach would just reject him <clears throat> they didn't want to hear what he had to say but also because of his calling that he had a special heart for those who belong, who uh, were not a part of Israel whom God wanted to bring into the fold So we can read in the book of Galatians that when Paul was in the context of the Gentiles, he did not carry on a pretext of acting culturally Jewish. He didn't bother with that. He didn't cling to the dietary concerns of his Jewish heritage. He ate what was put before him. He shared meals with the Gentiles. He didn't ask questions about it. He didn't insist that the Gentiles accommodate his own Jewish uh, leanings. Instead, he met them where they were at. The way that Paul laid down his identity to reach this group had to be particularly delicate, right? The behavior of this people was explicitly contrary to the commands of God. And this is one of the great themes of the book of 1 Corinthians. Is This is Paul reminding a, a group of believers that you were lost and dead in your sin, and then Christ came and saved you, and you're letting too much of your old self, which is dead and put away, you're letting that now define who you are in Christ. Be set apart from that. Be holy unto the Lord. So it's interesting that in the midst of a letter like that, he's saying, but don't be so, so set apart that you can't even relate to the people of the world you're trying to, to reach, that they don't have a way to speak to you, that you are holier than them and on some pedestal somewhere. So he's got he's to walk this fine line, doesn't he? He's trying to connect to a group of people who are very comfortable in their sin and who may not even recognize that they need saving. So there had to be limits to the way that Paul connected to those who were not under the law of God, the moral code that was laid out by Moses. Moses. So we accommodate culturally, but we don't accommodate in matters of morality, in matters of morality. He in no way took on the sin of the pagan people he was trying to reach. Things that were not commanded against by God, things that weren't important in in the revealed scripture, he didn't bother with that. He He didn't mind making adjustments, but when it came to things that God had commanded him to do or not do, he would not bend in those areas. We see some people today thinking that the gospel must go out at all costs, even if that means I got to start cursing like the world does. I got to use language that's ugly and filthy. Sometimes, even from the pulpit, you'll hear people preaching like this day. Why? In the name of reaching those who have a rough language, in the in the name of connecting to those who speak like that. But what good does it do you to speak like the lost? If in doing so, you make it seem as though the Lord is not really the Lord at all, that he has no authority to direct us and to guide our speech. We see that in the ways that Christians will sometimes have drinking parties these days and invite their lost friends over and they'll, they'll get tipsy, they'll get drunk together, but then they'll hope to share the gospel in the midst of that. That's not the way that we live, friends. We know from Scripture, and if you were in Sunday school today, we had a great discussion about this, that it is not against the law of God to drink alcohol, but we are not to be drunk. And so as Christians, we can't, for the sake of evangelism, act like the the world that has no limits when it comes to drinking. We've got to be reserved. We've got to stay diligent and focused and sober so that we can understand how to reach these people who are in such desperate need of the gospel. I was recently uh, looking at a, a blog post that a man who I used to really um, be grateful for—he does uh, did a lot of good worship song, uh, a lot of good worship songs in the past few years. His Name's Dustin Kensrew. He was interacting with some fans, and uh, one person was complaining about the strictures of Calvinism. And uh, we're we're a church that teaches the doctrines of grace. We're not ashamed about that. We believe that God elects some to salvation, we're gonna talk more about that tonight. But this person he was interacting with was really put off by it, and so Dustin Kendrew suggested it in a reply, and I was just blown away by this, that maybe that person look into open theism if that's something that interests them. And I thought, what are you doing, Dustin? Why would you point somebody to open theism if it is a poison that will kill them spiritually? Open theism is the idea that God is like us in that he learns That God knows everything that has happened, but he doesn't know everything that's going to happen yet. This this open theism is sometimes referred to as universalism, uh, but open theism means that God is hopeful that he'll be able to save many, but he's not sure who's going to be saved, and he's not able to make sure that his people particularly will be redeemed. This open theism makes God like a mortal. It makes him a slave to time like we are. Friends, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipotent. He's all powerful. Nothing can stop him or stay his hand or ask him, what have you done? He's in charge. He's in control. So if you point somebody to a a false system of belief that would assure their heart that, yeah, I can be a Christian, but I can also do what I want to do because God's not really in control. He doesn't actually have sovereignty over me. then we would be sabotaging that person's heart. A true shepherd could never do that. So we cannot accommodate in matters of morality. We must preach the truth to people. We must stay firm to the behavior that God has called us to. What role does the law play in the life of a believer? This passage does us a lot of good in trying to figure that out. If we contemplate the care with which the apostle speaks of these things, we are no longer under the law. But we are not antinomians. We have not abandoned the law entirely. It still plays a part in our lives. But it is no longer the code that condemns us. Because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, our Savior. So as we walk before the Lord today as righteous people, it's not our own righteousness that we have to offer to Him. It is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. It's called imputation. Christ's righteousness, His perfection. Perfect obedience to the law has been given to us so that now the law is no longer a burden to us, but it is the glorious framework by which we love the Lord and follow his will for our lives. The law of Christ here, described in 1 Corinthians 9, is repeated in Galatians 6, 2, where he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ So friends, as we love one another and we do so according to the instructions of scripture, we are bearing one another's burdens and we are fulfilling the law of Christ. We are loving each other the way that God has called us to love one another. So Paul's example here is that he's willing to take on these elements of the pagan way of life that did not violate his covenant to God through Christ and did not violate his conscience. Paul was willing to eat food prepared for him by the Gentiles. But he wouldn't have gone to one of the pagan festivals where that meat sacrifice to idols might have been served. We've talked about that a little bit in the past. There were these pagan sacrifices, these holidays, where they would come together and sinful things would go on, and they would have a great big feast. and It would sometimes last for days on end. The Christian would not participate in that, knowing that it was intended to give glory and honor to gods like Apollos and Athena, these false gods who weren't actually gods at all. So they would not give their hearts in worship like that. But would they eat at the table of a Gentile knowing that perhaps some of the meat that they were offering might have been sold in the marketplace after sacrifice to a god they would do that because it's not an act of worship to some foreign god he knows how to walk this thin razor's edge of obedience to the lord but also accommodation to those who need to know who the lord is one last element accommodation number four to the weak i became weak that i might win the weak this is a very interesting one here because Paul isn't necessarily talking about the lost in this. This is not just a principle of evangelism. It can also apply to those who are in the church who have professed to follow Christ, but are weak in their faith. They carry with them a sense of immaturity that might confuse them about what is right and what is wrong. This coincides with what we've been learning about this eating of meat sacrificed to idols. What did Paul do in instances like that where there was a professing brother or sister in Christ who might have been offended to see him eat meat that was sacrificed at, a, at, an, at an idol temple and then sold through the marketplace? He said, I'd rather not eat meat at all if it was going to offend these brothers and sisters. So we accommodate not only to the loss, but we also care for those within the church who are weaker. They are not yet mature. In Paul's case, that meant don't eat eat idle meat. That also could mean that you don't flaunt your clearer understanding of the Sabbath. Some people think that the Sabbath is not that big of a deal. Some people are very, very diligent about following the Sabbath and not working on Sunday on the Lord's Day. We've got to be cautious that we don't become too judgmental to people on that. We don't come across as those who know all things and just expect you to catch up. If I'm up here preaching using words that you don't understand and I don't take the time to explain them to you, I'm not loving you like I should. I should care for you enough to explain what I'm trying to help you understand. I don't just show off my vocabulary and then move along. We've got to be willing to bear one another's burdens as a fulfillment of the law of Christ. In in a nutshell, be a Christian. Don't be an insensitive jerk to one another, right? Right? We must care for the church as well as those outside of the church. Personal personal identity is, is dear to people, isn't it? We recoil immediately at the thought of compromising any aspect of who we are for any reason whatsoever. I think our culture has drilled that into us. People can be so defensive about their gender, about their race, about their personal preferences in life. And if if the right mantra is to thine own self be true then people almost feel like they're betraying themselves if they adopt any or they adapt to accommodate anybody else's needs or desires but what paul has taught us today should tell us how important evangelism and the spread of the gospel is Though personal identity is sacred and personal to Paul, he's even willing to set some of that to the side if it might possibly give him an opportunity to reach someone for Christ. We need to be willing to accommodate in matters of personal justice and favor. We must be willing to accommodate those things. In matters of personal preference and opinion, we've got to be willing to adjust and to adapt. Even in matters of personal security, where it might put us in danger to reach out to a people group. We must be willing to do that because those interactions sometimes lead people to Christ. Paul says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And what does he do it for? He does it for the sake of the gospel that he may share with them in its blessings. The driving force of all this sacrifice, the sake of the gospel. To thine own self be true, not to the Christian. For the man or woman who has died to themselves and become a new creation, there is a greater compass by which we now navigate. So we must declare to the gospel of Jesus Christ be true. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for loving us closer to yourself through your word. I pray that you would not only equip us with knowledge today, but that you would move our hearts to be obedient to it, Lord God. May we even be here considering someone in our life right now who might be very different than us, who nevertheless you have drawn them across our path. Is there some way that we can reach out to them, that we can show uh, an, an adjustment in our own behavior or language or the way that we approach them so that we might possibly have a conversation with them about Jesus? Help us to be willing to lay anything to the side that might be offensive if it's not important to you. Lord God, what matters to you should be what determines what we do or do not do. And so I pray, Father, that we would not add to your law that we would not set limits for ourselves that you have not set, but instead give us a boldness and a courage to speak the truth that has saved us. We love you, Lord God, and I pray if there's anyone here today that has not yet trusted in you, that they would not go another moment without trusting you, that you would open their eyes to what they need to see, Lord, and if there are conversations that need to go on after the service today, I pray that people would stick around and seek Pastor Paul or myself or Sean, that we would be able to discuss with them the things of your word, Father, they would talk to the person who brought them today or invited them. Lord, we want to see conversions because we want to see the kingdom of heaven expand as you have declared it will. So we thank you, God, for all that you do. And we pray that you would um, keep your eye on us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen.